Sunder Episode 6, Panopticon. Section 1, FDC to FCI Prison. It's October of 1997. I'm 26 years old and have been sentenced to 76 months for committing a solo armed bank robbery. I've been in Multnomah County Detention Center since April. Now, I'm being transferred from jail to prison. The clothes I had worn during the robbery had been cut away in surgery prep at the hospital and put in evidence. So I'm being transferred in a dirty hospital gown and hospital socks I wore into county jail. A number of us are loaded onto a prison bus in belly chains and manacles. Oregon opened its first federal prison in 1989 in Sheridan, Oregon. On site are a Federal Correctional Institution, or FCI, a medium security prison. There's a camp, a low security prison, right next door. And lastly, there's a federal detention center, an FDC, basically a federal jail that includes immigration holds and deportees. I'm one of about 1,900 prisoners total between the three units. At FTC Sheridan, I'm again strip-searched, fingerprinted, photographed, then issued boxers, socks, t-shirts, thin shoes, and a jumpsuit. I'm issued my prison ID card that you can see on the art for the podcast. I will now have to use my prisoner number for every form, letter, or to access the commissary while I'm inside. I'm prisoner number 61938-065. I still know my number by heart, 20 years out of prison. In my letters to Ms. Sunder, I joke that in our jumpsuits, we look like a gang of angry janitors. I'm put in a two-man cell, six feet by nine feet. I can touch both walls with my outstretched fingertips. I meet my first Sally, a younger George Costanza type with a mustache and nervous, darting eyes. A former car salesman with a coke habit, now he has about a three-year sentence for robbing banks with a note. When he sleeps, statico snores punctuated by farts are the norm. When awake, he stresses about the $50,000 he owes the IRS that he'll have to pay off after his sentence. Detention centers are jails, meaning there's relatively high turnover and also nearly nothing to do with your time. Almost all your time is spent in your cell. Exercise time outside the cell is a couple hours a day at most in oversized dog runs in small groups. It is loud as fuck inside. Buzzers, guard radios, slamming cell doors, people yelling, everything concrete and steel reflecting sound. The weeks pass and I wonder when I will be transferred to regular prison. I also know none of that is in my control. Welcome to the incarcerated life. There's a number of factors prisoners use to gauge each other, and one of those is sentence length. Generally, a person with a longer sentence garners more respect in prison for a number of reasons. First, because they have less to lose. Second, because it often indicates the seriousness or mindset of the individual. A person with a 30-year sentence is living the best part of their life inside. Some will be in prison until they die. That prisoner is hopefully thinking about what to do with that time. A person with 18 months is usually focused on the outside world and doesn't have a vested interest in prison conditions. Once a person is sentenced to prison time of more than a year, your ass belongs to either a state or federal prison system. Prison systems can be black holes, hidden worlds with little outside oversight. That means dealing with an internal prison bureaucracy which has zero incentive to consider your interests. A prison phrase in wide use in 1997 was, quote, you got nothing coming meaning no influence nor sway and nobody on your side. I heard it a lot in jail, as well as in prison. I would internalize it some as I saw how prisoners were treated, but the phrase really sank in when a guy in the FCI stabbed a celly, who had before gone to prison administration to get 
transferred out of that cell, and the guards let that prisoner bleed to death in the cell while they fucked around deciding on security protocols. Having a cellie means getting used to cell etiquette, how you're going to live together in a prison cell smaller than most bathrooms. Some cellies like the cell to be spotlessly clean at all times or have strong preferences and habits. If you have to shit in the cell while the other person is in the cell with you, then courtesy flushes are considered important. Some people have strong opinions on top bunk versus bottom bunk. Generally, the first choice goes to the person who has been in the cell longest. I'm firmly in the top bunk camp. The downside of top bunk is having to climb in and out, and also that farts rise. The plus side is you can get up in your bunk and be out of the floor traffic in the cell. No one is going to sit or step on your top bunk. Once I get into the general population at the FCI, there will be more opportunity to pick cellies. But in the FDC, the COs, the correctional officers, choose your cellie. While I was there, it was two bunks per cell. Ms. Sunder starts visiting me on the weekends. I appreciate the time we can spend together. I still send lots of letters and some drawings. She starts sending me books via bookstores. There's rules about what can be sent and through what parties, but oh god, I'm happy to get anything to read. I get subscriptions to National Geographic, Entertainment Weekly, Funny Times, and Covert Action Quarterly. After about a month, I'm transferred from the detention center to the prison across the street, the FCI. Prison does a charade where they get the transfer order, but didn't yet have open bed space in a housing unit. So they transfer me and then tell me they're going to put me in the hole until, quote, my paperwork arrives, which supposedly includes details on my security level. That's their excuse for putting me in the hole. I refuse to sign the paperwork the case officer puts in front of me, pointing out no one believes that they don't have my paperwork from literally across the street, let alone an electronic copy. I'm strip searched and then put in an orange jumpsuit used in the hole. The hole is a nickname for what is also known as SHU, S-H-U, the acronym for Segregated Housing Unit. These are used for punishment, 23 hours a day lockdown, one hour a day recreation in a chain-link dog run slightly bigger than your cell. All the cells have bunk beds. Even in the hole, they double up because of overcrowding. The only time a person gets a single cell is for suicide watch or if the guards think you swallowed contraband or if a prisoner continually states they will assault or kill anyone they are celled with and then follows through. Those guys get single cells. In contraband cases, you get put in a, quote, dry cell, as in a prison cell with no plumbing, just a bucket so your feces can be inspected. My celly in the hole is a chill, older, dope fiend biker from California, a white guy with a lot of prison tattoos of varying quality and a classic prison build with skinny legs and a muscular and cut upper body. He's bilingual and his style is cholo-influenced, and he has a shy smile. He tells me a little about the FCI, what the recreation yard is like, what kind of jobs are available in the prison. Prison jobs are important because unless you have a medical waiver, you'll be assigned work. Most of the prisoners work in the kitchens, and that's where new arrivals will be assigned. He tells me the best jobs are in the Unicorp Prison Industries Furniture Factory on site, but that also there's a waiting list. He's in the hole for failing a drug test. I want to mention here that prisoners I met in 1997 were usually pretty willing to give useful advice to a new fish like myself coming into the system. Don't lend or borrow things or money. Avoid gifts. Don't gamble if you don't have the money. Don't get in debt. Avoid drama and people with something to prove. Be yourself. Don't front or act tough. In the chow hall, sit with others of your own race. Mind your own business. Keep busy. Stand up for yourself, but better yet, avoid situations in the first place. 
So I start my time in prison in the hole. Prisoners in the shoe communicate cell to cell, sometimes using a comb on a length of dental floss. The comb can then be skimmed under the cell doors to attempt to catch the comb and floss of another cell. Once connected, small items can be transferred back and forth using the floss. I learn how to make chess pieces out of toilet paper mache. I write letters, fold origami cranes. Time in the hole is slow. Nearly everyone sleeps about 12 hours a day. Visiting is nice, though. Here in visiting, Ms. Sunder and I can hold hands, sit next to each other, and give a hug and kiss at the beginning and end. Whole prisoners wearing orange jumpsuits have to sit away from their other general population prisoners, visiting in their khaki pants and shirts. I get strip searched twice on the way back from visiting, once in visiting and once in the hole, but before being put back in my cell. The visiting process is hard on Ms. Sunder. The visiting room runs a mass spectrometer to supposedly detect contraband on visitors coming in to see prisoners. A positive reading on the mass spectrometer means your family member or friend can't visit that day. A second positive for drugs the next day means they can't visit for more than a week. Some of the prisoners' families have flown or driven great distances to visit, and the mass spectrometer can detect parts per millions of substances, including drugs. Have you handled U.S. currency? 80 to 90% of all U.S. currency test positive for controlled substances. Did you wear a jacket to a restaurant or bar? Ride on a bus or in a cab or a rental car? Easy to get contaminated. Visitors wearing underwire bras would be told they had to remove the bras for inspection to ensure a weapon wasn't being smuggled into the visiting room. Prisoners' loved ones are routinely treated as suspects and supplicants with the threat looming that visiting will be denied and that the prisoner could be retaliated against as well. Never mind that the vast majority of drugs coming into prisons is via the guards and staff, not visitors. Staff come and go and can easily smuggle in what is difficult and risky for visitors and prisoners to pull off. Finally, in early November, after about two weeks, I'm assigned a bed in a housing unit in the general population inside the FCI. I'm released from the hole, issued general population boxers, socks, steel-toe work shoes, khaki pants, and shirts, and jacket at the laundry and walk out for the first time in the prison. Next episode, I'll detail my early years in prison, what 9-11 was like inside prison, as well as prison kitchen and prison factory work. Hi, I'm Brian, the host of Sunder. In the podcast, I'll walk you through an armed bank robbery I committed in 1997 and the aftermath, so there's true crime described in the first person. I'll also be discussing politics from the point of view of a volunteer labor organizer and socialist, so it is a political podcast. And lastly, I will talk about how to break free of the zero-sum paralysis of this life, to sunder the bonds of suffering, how to take action and change this world in your community right now. You and I have this decade to forge the mass movement required to change conditions and build a worthwhile, livable future. Let's do this together. Welcome to Sunder. I propose to talk to you tonight of the crime of poverty. I cannot in a short time hope to convince you of much, but the thing of things I should like to show you is that poverty is a crime. I don't mean that it's a crime to be poor. Murder is a crime, but it's not a crime to be murdered. And a man who is in poverty, I look upon not as a criminal in himself, so much as the victim of a crime for which others are responsible. If a man chooses to be poor, he commits no crime in being poor. 
It's certainly a crime to force poverty on others. And it seems to me clear that the great majority of those who suffer from poverty are poor, not from their own particular faults, but because of conditions imposed by society at large. Therefore, I hold that poverty is a crime, not an individual crime, but a social crime, a crime for which we all are responsible. There's no natural reason why we should not all be rich, in the sense not of having more than each other, but in the sense of all having enough to completely satisfy all physical wants, of all having enough to get such an easy living that we could develop the better part of humanity. There is enough and to spare. The trouble is that in this mad struggle, we trample in the mire what has been provided in sufficiency for us all. Trample it in the mire while we tear and rend each other. Think for a moment how it would strike a rational being who had never been on the earth before if such an intelligence could come down and you were to explain to him how we live on earth how houses and food and clothing and all the many things we need were all produced by work. Would he not think that the working people would be the people who lived in the finest houses and had most of everything that work produces? Yet, whether you took him to London or Paris or New York or even to Burlington, he would find that those called the working people were the people who live in the poorest houses. Did you ever think of the utter absurdity and strangeness of the fact that all over the civilized world, the working classes are the poor classes? Go into any city in the world and get into a cab and ask the man to drive you where the working people live. He won't take you to where the fine houses are. He will take you, on the contrary, into the squalid quarters, the poorer quarters. Did you ever think how curious that is? Section 2. The Carceral State Over two million men, women, and children are currently incarcerated in the United States. America continues to have the highest prison population per capita in the world, and as a nation, we tend to incarcerate five times as many people as comparable countries. Over 10 million people in the U.S. will cycle through jail this year. Standard federal incarceration includes federal detention centers, FDCs, basically federal jails for holding transfers, prisoners awaiting sentencing, and deportation of detainees. The lowest security are the camps, dormitory-style housing for prisoners, many of whom are on work crews or work release. These prisoners have a very short sentence, or very little time left of a sentence. Low and medium security prisons are Federal Correctional Institutions, or FCIs. Medium and high security prisons, mostly high security, are the United States Penitentiaries, or USPs. Above that, you get into Administrative Detention, ADX, which are maximum security or supermax facilities. It's not uncommon for these facilities to be built in clusters. In Oregon, for example, you have Sheridan FDC, Camp Sheridan, and the Sheridan FCI all next to each other. 
In Colorado, there's USB Florence as well as an FDC and an ADX Supermax in the same complex. State prisons vary much more by state, but are also often infamous for their cruelty. Parchman Farms, Angola, Pelican Bay, or Rikers Island, for example. In 2017, white people made up 64% of the adult population of the U.S., but only 30% of the prison population. Black people made up 13% of the U.S. adult population, but 33% of the prison population. And Latinos made up 16% of the adult population, but 23% of the prisoners. Institutional and systemic racism is a clear factor, as is socioeconomic status. The U.S. has a well-documented history of racial disparity in sentencing and paroles. The origin of the term penitentiary is penance, which is defined as voluntary self-punishment. The builders of the first penitentiaries in the U.S. envisioned prisoners living a monastic existence in daily contrition and reflection on their crimes. Slavery was abolished in the U.S. with the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, but the 13th Amendment included a loophole allowing slavery and involuntary servitude as punishment for a crime as long as the person had been, quote, duly convicted. During Jim Crow in the U.S., petty crimes like vagrancy and loitering on the books were targeted specifically at blacks and non-whites. These, quote, black codes were then used to create imprisoned, unpaid convict labor to lease out for exploitation and continue aspects of slavery. Today, prisoners on the whole are required to work, either maintaining the prison operations or as contract labor, usually paid cents on the dollar and in direct competition with workers who aren't incarcerated. That's a massive system of labor exploitation. Up until recent years, prisoners in California were fighting fires for a dollar an hour in pay, with no opportunity once released to ever be allowed as ex-convicts to work fighting fires. Today in that state, there are finally provisions and a path for ex-convicts to pursue firefighting as a career. But numerous careers in many states prohibit the formerly incarcerated from obtaining licensure for the same work they performed as exploited prisoners. And whether or not they are able to pursue a career, the labor of prisoners is used historically and today to undercut wages and benefits for free workers. Prisons pay prisoners what they classify as tips, not wages per hour. They do this to skirt labor laws. Because of this charade, the state avoids having to pay Social Security or federal minimum wage. In 1997, I made 17 cents an hour starting in the chow hall. When I moved to the vegetable prep room, I made 49 cents an hour. By the time I got to a grade one position inside the furniture factory, the second highest pay grade, I was making $1.15 an hour in the year 2002. There's a catch-22 here in that many prisoners want some sort of gainful employment as they are very often saddled with debt from the courts. As well, they may also want to earn so they can have money for commissary or to send money to their families and help support them on the outside or just to save up so when they get out they can afford to get a vehicle or work tools first and last month's rent, etc. Incarcerated people want something to do with their time, just like anyone, and no jailer wants prisoners with nothing to do, idle hands and all. Population controls always focus on keeping people busy. In prison, if you don't give prisoners activities they can engage in, generally you get unrest, organizing, riots, and strikes. But I'll tell you an open secret, that's not just how it works inside prison. During the pandemic, 
people suddenly had time on their hands and the largest national action around George Floyd and Black Lives Matter kicked off. Abigail Disney, an heir of the Disney family, as well as a whistleblower and activist, believes the Disney Corporation purposely designs 60-hour-a-week schedules for workers particularly so the workers have no time to labor organize. As a volunteer Amazon organizer and former Amazon Warehouse employee, I believe a lot of corporations are engaged in similar structures, including Amazon, working people as hard as they can to wring out value and prevent organizing while exhausting the workers until they break or quit. When discussing incarceration, it is important to understand that we don't have to leave prisoners with nothing to engage in but work and exploitation. A lot of people I was incarcerated with were demoralized by the reduced funding for education in prison. The 1994 crime bill that Congress passed eliminated Pell Grants for prisoners and the majority of education funding for prisoners generally. Pell Grants are need-based grants to low-income students. Just this year in 2023, after some pilot test programs, access to Pell Grants for incarcerated people is supposed to be more broadly accessible again. Back in 2003, around the time I was released from prison, a study found that while 18% of the non-incarcerated adult population lacked a high school diploma, in federal prison, 27% had no diploma. Of state and county jail populations surveyed, 40-47% to had no high school diploma or equivalent. Education levels have massive, deep, heavy correlations to imprisonment. Any plan to reduce recidivism, any plan to reduce crime, must address education opportunities and engage prisoners in education as much as possible. As a society, we tend to normalize dehumanizing conditions for incarcerated people. Prison rape jokes today remain a well-worn trope in movies. In polite society, you can publicly wish rape and torture upon prisoners as part of their punishment. An unspoken understanding that bad things happen to bad people. Chicago police and jailers, as one example, have a long history of torturing false confessions from hundreds of prisoners. The Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Police Repression identified over 600 victims of torture during imprisonment in Chicago alone in the report released in 2021. A news story circulated recently of LaShawn Thompson found dead in an Atlanta jail cell, his corpse a mass of welts from bedbug bites. 23 incarcerated people in Texas jails have died due to extreme heat conditions since 1998. At other prisons, prisoners' families hold clothing drives because the freezing temperatures in the cells and inadequate clothing provided for the prisoners to stay warm in their cells. Inside jails and prisons where the media is not allowed, conditions can vary broadly. In prisons across the U.S., over multiple decades, you get guards creating gladiatorial arenas and pitting prisoners against each other while taking bets in the fights. Retaliation for grievances against prison guards or administrators is common. Attack dogs used to intimidate or assault prisoners. Rampant violence unchecked among prisoners. All this in the same nation that imprisons more children than any other today and jails people with intellectual development or cognitive disabilities at numbers estimated in the hundreds of thousands. We have so far to go. I've mentioned before that it was well known in my time inside that the vast majority of drugs and contraband on the prison yard came through the guards. Things haven't changed. I'll quote an Associated Press article from November of 2021. Quote, More than 100 federal prison workers have been arrested 
convicted or sentenced for crimes since the start of 2019, including a warden indicted for sexual abuse, an associate warden charged with murder, guards taking cash to smuggle drugs and weapons, and supervisors stealing property such as tires and tractors. The rate of reported COVID transmissions and outbreak in the U.S. remained the highest consistently in prison and jails across the country and killed 2,500 prisoners by February of 2021. The death rate from COVID among prisoners compared to outside U.S. populations was 20% higher. A few nursing homes at Amazon fulfillment centers vied for position, but prisons were more often than not leading the weekly reports of outbreaks in my state. This story, in my opinion, was severely underreported, not only in the interest of prisoners, but also as these continual outbreaks meant exposing prison guards and staff to COVID, which they also died from or transmitted to their families and broader community. This acceptance of barbarous conditions and treatment of prisoners degrades the acceptable range of how we choose to care for humans broadly. It also belies the understanding that 95% of those incarcerated will be released back into society. At what cost do you degrade fellow humans that will then be expected to rejoin you in society? We're all in here together. Incarceration in the U.S. isn't about penance nor about rehabilitation particularly. It's about warehousing, exploiting labor, and a jobs program on the scale of the U.S. military. There are nearly 400,000 correction officers and jailers in the U.S. today. There are an estimated 800,000 state and federal prison workers in the U.S. That is a massive jobs program. That number doesn't include probation officers and prison administration, nor the workers in, let alone stockholders, of the over 4,100 corporations that profit off of the $80 billion annual cost of incarcerating prisoners in America. Incarceration is also about warehousing because prisons, as a rule, are overcrowded. Cells originally meant to house one prisoner often holds four or six or eight. In 2011, the Supreme Court ruled overcrowding in California prisons constituted cruel and unusual punishment. Imprisonment is the definition of a power imbalance where the captor controls much of your ability to report abuse. Without strong oversight, you get sexual predation of female prisoners by guards and staff as all too common. Incarcerated women are four times more likely to be a victim of sexual assault in prison than men. Despite efforts like the Prison Rape Elimination Act of 2003, conditions that allow for rape and sexual assault have not changed. There are also reproductive health issues. People with wombs who are pregnant at the time of incarceration would deliver a baby and face immediate separation. An analysis conducted by the National Women's Law Center failed 20 states on confinement, shackling policies, and family-based treatment alternatives for those undergoing pregnancy and childbirth. Prisons routinely delay and fail to respond to medical crises in a timely manner, and this includes pregnancies. The sterilization of prisoners of the state, as well as, quote, wards of the state, has especially impacted women of color, including indigenous peoples. Too many male and female prisoners, especially, historically, were forcibly sterilized. This practice continues today. Between 2006 and 2010, over 150 female prisoners held by ICE were forcibly sterilized. In 2020, it was reported that 57 women held at an ICE detention center had reported forced gynecological surgeries between 2018 and 2020. The actual number is believed to be much higher. Coerced sterilization cases have also been reported. 
In 2017, it was found a Tennessee judge was giving time off sentences if the person, quote, agreed to either a vasectomy for male prisoners or a four-year birth control implant for female prisoners. Solitary confinement is classified as torture by the UN Human Rights Commission, and the U.S. continually and broadly has been identified as one of the most prolific nations in the use of arbitrary solitary confinement as torture. The psychological impact is long-lasting. Extended isolation destroys mental health and the ability of the prisoner to function. Places like ADX Florence in Colorado are designed to make solitary confinement the centerpiece of imprisonment. This practice must be reformed massively and broadly ended. Institutionalization is still a real issue where people become so accustomed to prison, have so internalized the rules and norms of inside life that the outside world is confusing and hard in comparison. PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is also more common among prisoners than among the regular populace by a factor of 10. Where about 3 or 4% of people in society broadly are estimated to have PTSD, closer to 30 to 40% of state prisoners were found to have PTSD. What does that look like? Anxiety, depression, avoidance, hypersensitivity, hypervigilance, suicidality, flashbacks, and difficulty with emotional regulation. When I went to work in the Amazon Fulfillment Center in 2020, more than 18 years out of prison, the loud reflective surfaces of concrete and steel in the warehouse, the rattling and rumbling of the pallet jacks, and the handheld radios in use fucked with my head. I kept looking over my shoulder for a prison guard. The U.S. carceral system still executes prisoners in 20 states with death penalty laws on the books in 26. The federal government executes prisoners as well, with some periods where moratoriums were in effect. Currently under the present administration, the moratorium is again in place after Dustin Higgs at USP Terre Haute, Indiana, was executed in January of 2021. Executions are often botched and torturous in the U.S., including some failed executions, and the system and humanity of lethal injection litigated in numerous states. Not that this should surprise you, but nearly every developed nation and the majority of nations in the world have banned capital punishment. Because of the legal costs surrounding death sentence cases and negative press, many states in the last few decades chose to commute death sentences to, quote, life without parole, and many prosecutors changed tactics and pursued life-without-parole sentences. As a result, prisons now carry a large aging population with a higher population of geriatric prisoners than ever. Prisons are becoming America's biggest old people's homes. Now, the country that locks up more people than anywhere else must deal with the consequences of a green prison population. Growing old in prison is hard. You know, they just struggle with the reality of just, you know, being in prison. They don't believe they're in prison. They don't know why they're in prison. That's the biggest struggle I see most of the guys have, you know. In 1997, 63% of the federal prisoners were in for drug offenses. Today, across the prison systems, drug convictions are not the majority. Violence is the bright line. After 9-11, the feds refocused on war on terror convictions and away from the drug war. In 10 states today, after serving time, the formerly incarcerated in some cases do not regain the ability to vote without petitioning the state and requesting that right be reinstated. The request may be refused. With the clear racial and class components of who is incarcerated in the U.S., this further exacerbates literal disenfranchisement of the poorest 
in our nation and peoples of color. Medical care and access in prison is a mixed bag. Prison dental work for some folks may be the first dental care they have ever had, but medical treatment costs money, especially outside medical work, which requires transport, guards, and a whole secrecy routine. And complications can go untreated. A fellow prisoner I was in with at Sheridan FCI got a hernia working in the prison furniture factory. It required surgery. The guards who had taken him to outside surgery rushed him out of post-operative recovery and back to the prison. And when he reported complications to prison medical staff, the issue was ignored long enough for one of his testes to become necrotic and die. At the same time, with the terrible state of health care in the U.S., there were and are cases of people robbing a bank for a dollar so they can go to prison and get health care for their cancer treatment. There was one at Sheridan while I was there. These cases are outliers, and unfortunately the common experience for prisoners is that you are assumed to be an addict, grifter, or malingerer until proved otherwise. Medical care, other than antipsychotic meds, is rationed heavily and hard to access in prison. Based on a Vanderbilt research study published in 2013, every year in U.S. prison reduces your life expectancy by two years, in the same way your zip code can determine your life expectancy or living homeless reduces your life expectancy. Recidivism rates, returning to prison, are much higher in the U.S. than compared to other countries like Norway, for example, where prison populations are much lower and job training, education, and rehabilitation are focused. Private for-profit prisons are run mostly by two companies, GeoGroup and CoreCivic. For-profit prisons for federal prisons were phased out under Obama, rescinded under Trump, and then phased out again in 2021 by the Biden administration. For-profit prisons are usually the worst because the prison is incentivized to profit off of your incarceration, which translates to extreme understaffing, which means almost no yard or rec time, no educational opportunities, and the lowest quality lowest cost food. Prisons are reflections of society. Bill Fletcher Jr., an educator, writer, and labor historian, has discussed how people of color in the United States are often socially performing the roles once relegated to canaries in the coal mines, the first exposed to exploitation soon coming down the pipe for us all. Prisoners in the U.S., overrepresented in peoples of color, in my mind are also canaries in the coal mine. The degradation of prisoners and the formerly incarcerated undermines the conditions for the supposedly free society as well. The divide-and-conquer strategies required to prevent solidarity of prisoners, which I will discuss at length in the last section, is being used in free society and in workplaces continuously for the same reasons, to control you and exploit your labor. Section 3, Prison Food Strike. I'm walking back after my breakfast across the prison to the housing unit from the prison kitchens where I work. I've been at the FCI for 18 months at this point. A white guy in his 40s with ginger hair and a build like Guy Fieri stops me and tells me, hey, pass the word, don't go to the chow hall for lunch. Food strike, you understand? I've been here long enough that I know he's a shot caller. Shot callers are another name for leaders within different prison demographics, typically broken down by race. I tell him, yes, I understand. Food quality has gone way down in the last year, and it's time to get the administration to actually make decent meals, starting with the quality of the ingredients they're using, the biker tells me. 
A food strike in prison is when all the prisoners refuse to go to eat. It's not a full hunger strike in the sense that the prisoners aren't agreeing not to eat. A fair number have some food in their cells, and if food is brought to them, there's no push not to eat it. That said, some prisoners will go hungry for at least one meal. A prison food strike is an economic strike, refusing to allow the normal operations of the prison to function and making some clear demands. A significant number of prisoners in the U.S. have also used group hunger strikes to protest conditions and treatment, and this is an ongoing tactic in resisting exploitation inside prisons today. I wasn't part of the planning for the prison food strikes that I participated in, but with organizer training and experience today, I can see better how it was structured. The way a prison food strike is called is when the leaders of the different gangs and religious communities decide together in secret and build a plan. Most leaders among the incarcerated had prior experience in prison with food strikes and other forms of resistance. Gang leaders know each other, they communicate to resolve disputes. Religious leaders often know and influence gang leaders and vice versa. The leaders have to be on board for the food strike to ever work. Plus, they are going to spread the word through their networks. Most prisoners from different racial, ethnic, and religious groups work together in the kitchens, in the furniture factory, or are in the few educational classes available together. They also live in the same housing units, go to the chapel for religious services together, and can pass the word quickly. The biker spoke to me that day because he had been tasked to tell people he knew about the food strike and to pass the word. I had been in the prison long enough to be a known quantity. If I had said no or refused to participate, there would likely be little in the way of immediate repercussions. But I would not be respected or trusted after that among the incarcerated men who considered themselves prisoners rather than passive inmates. Respect counts for a lot in prison. Long term, refusing the call to strike could impact who would sell with me, my prison work assignments, or whether I was seen as disconnected and therefore easier to prey upon. In the housing unit, my celly confirms he heard the same, food strike. He had heard it on the exercise yard from a co-worker in the prison dental clinic. A food strike is exciting news and extremely hot gossip. In the boring environment of the prison, this exciting news is going to spread very quickly. Inside the housing unit, word is passed that if someone is super short on food in their cell or diabetic, that other prisoners will donate food to cover them. This usually breaks down along racial lines, but most everything in prison is divided along those lines. Your race determines a lot of the time who you will sell with, where you will sit in the chow hall, and which TV room you will use. When I go back to work in the kitchens, my co-workers in the vegetable prep room, where we're locked inside with knives cabled to the tables, have heard the same word being passed, don't go to lunch. We discuss our experiences, if any, in prior food strikes, and more experienced prisoners share tactics. Messaging around the food strike demand was shared among prisoners ahead of the lockdown. Demand was higher food quality ingredients in one strike, and exercise yards staffing levels and access in another food strike. A weaker point of the food strike as deployed was no committee, no group of prisoners delivered demands directly, mostly to avoid immediate transfer orders. However, it was clear both times that staff got the message and they read out responses to the demands usually during and after the strikes. That response made it clear that the prison administration got the demands. Twenty years ago and today, there are still issues around the quality of food going to prisoners. In 2020, for example, the Bureau of Prisons was receiving from a vendor millions of dollars in whole cow hearts labeled as ground beef, as well as other incidents of substandard expired or adulterated food items. When the time for lunch comes, the doors to the housing unit are unlocked by a CO so that prisoners can go to the chow hall. Instead of a rush of men, they get a trickle. Only a few folks head off to the chow hall. 90% of us are still in our housing units. The 10% who go to the chow hall are mostly pill liners, people who have to get medication at lunch from the pharmacy. 
In a number of cases, these men are receiving antipsychotic meds. If these incarcerated men don't get their pill, they get in trouble with the staff, and likely their celly is also not thrilled. Mental illness is overrepresented in prison populations, as state-sponsored mental institutions were mostly defunded under the Reagan administration. The mentally ill, more often than not, end up chronically homeless, or in prison, or both. The last few percent who might go to the chow hall during the food strike are either especially oblivious, contrarians, or bootlickers. Prisoners don't have any beef with the mentally ill incarcerated men skipping the call to action. It takes about 25 minutes before the corrections officers call for a lockdown. All the incarcerated are ordered to return to housing units and then are locked in their cells. Prisons run on prison labor. Landscaping, maintenance, food preparation, janitorial, laundry. Usually as well contract labor, license plates is the old adage, but also call centers, garment fabrication, and other jobs. In the federal system, there's Unicor Prison Industries that produces goods for the federal government, like helmet liners, missile wiring harnesses, federal forms, military and prison uniforms, eyeglasses for the military and prisoners, furniture factories producing furniture for government offices, and the like. But the bottom line is nearly every essential function of the prison is run on prison labor. A prison food strike withholds that labor by triggering the response system by the prison. The lockdown costs the prison administration a ton in overtime, negative press, and public relations, as well as attention from superiors and economic partners, and disrupts the most of the economic function of the prison. Inside prison, there is a clear class divide, captives and captors. Among the incarcerated, we divided ourselves into prisoners versus inmates. Inmates were defined as more self-centered, sometimes oblivious about the difference between captive and captor. An inmate is just doing his time. An inmate might gossip with a corrections officer, might play cards or buddy with the people maintaining their captivity. A prisoner was defined as having class consciousness, understanding that these COs are the COs that let prisoners die in their cells due to medical neglect. These captors will lie to cover up for other guards violating prisoners' rights. These guards will shoot you if you try to leave here. The same guards who bring in most of the contraband, who treat your visitors and family like criminals, who will pin crimes on you, harass your family trying to visit, try to violate your rights or treat you like a dog, or worse. Don't get it twisted. With that knowledge comes a theoretical understanding of solidarity. Organized resistance like a food strike is how prisoners teach each other to viscerally understand their power to really internalize the agency of humans when we stand together. Back in the late 90s and early aughts, I would estimate the ratio of those who saw themselves as prisoners to those who mostly lacked class consciousness, inmates, as roughly 50 to 40. But the prisoners had at least some rudimentary organization compared to the inmates who were simply out for themselves or unaware, and the majority of inmates could be asked, encouraged, and convinced to go along with the organized prisoners. Before prison, my class consciousness existed, but still from the perspective of a liberal consumer. Ralph Nader-style politics that identified class oppression as part of the issue, but lacked the analysis providing a real solution, and definitely not a solution that would transform our enforced role as passive consumers. Before prison, I supported labor unions in theory, but had very little direct experience. Back then, I would do things like bring a long list of potential improvements to a staff meeting at the restaurant where I worked in the kitchen but I didn't know how to organize with my coworkers. I know how to organize now, and it is a skill you can learn as well. Organizing in prison is one of the biggest red flags for prison administrators because it threatens their control and power. 
The ratio averages about 40 to 1, 40 prisoners for every guard, and this goes up or down depending on security level. The reality of prison function is the prison relies on and enforces divisions between the prisoners to control the prison population. Divide and conquer. Those prisoners are then used to actually run the daily operations in the prison. This is a microcosm of the outside world's economic relationship. It's just at the bottom layers, the social relationships of exploitation and control are starkly naked. In the old days, there was what was called diesel therapy. In federal, if you were flagged as a prison organizer, retaliation was to put you on a continual transfer between different prisons. That meant being in a belly chain and manacles on a bus, and as soon as you get to the next prison, transfer again. So no access to personal property, no phone calls, no letters, no visits, no life, just endless transfers so that you never organize prisoners and build solidarity. Prisons take the threat of legitimate organizer very seriously. These days, organizers are more likely to be transferred far away, an FDC in Puerto Rico, for example, or put in solitary, like ATX Florence. For a prison food strike to be successful, you need the highest possible percent of prisoners engaged, and that means all racial and associational beefs have to be squashed during the food strike. It is a class consciousness that recognizes power and what it takes to win, and recognizes common cause. It stands in stark contrast to the culture wars. Literally in prison food strikes, all different affiliations take part, despite being in conflict otherwise. Nation of Islam, Five Percenters, Crips, Bloods, Serenios, Northanials, LMA, and the Aryan Brotherhood all find common cause in a food strike. After prison, the closest analog I would see to this kind of understanding of what it takes to win was in labor organizing. Amazon Labor Union on Staten Island won in part because the organizing committee had both self-identified communists as well as MAGA Trump supporters. In Iowa, the John Deere strikes in 2022 were workers across the political spectrum finding common cause in refusing two-tier wages. I want to be clear here. Political alliances with, for example, white supremacists, fascists, or other peoples with reprehensible political ideologies is an anathema to a better future. The point is instead understanding what it takes to win a strike, whether in prison or in a workplace. It takes participation in the 90% range, and odds are 90% of your coworkers don't have the same politics. Organizing takes emotional intelligence, focusing on the interests common to most people. In Austin, Texas, before the pandemic, the Austin DSA chapter lobbied for worker rights in the form of sick time and found a way to bridge the rural and urban divide, which often translates as liberal and conservative. They found many conservatives who had sick time themselves simply didn't know most jobs in the area didn't allow workers sick time. The door-knocking campaign mattered hugely in having those conversations. During the food strike, after we are all locked down, the COs count all the prisoners and then go to each cell and interrogate prisoners, standing in the door of the clipboard, a second CO behind them. They start asking questions. Did you go to the chow hall at lunch? If not, why not? Will you go to the next meal? Why not? Most prisoners respond cryptically or vaguely. They give shrugs. Oh, was lunch called? I overslept. Or I didn't feel like it. Or wasn't hungry. Clearly, the COs are trying to see if anyone is going to snitch, or ID leaders, or the like. It's intimidation tactics from the COs. Most prisoners already had practice not answering questions from the correction officers, and additionally, most prisoners knew from cops, courts, and prison experience not to admit to anything. 
Because anyone identifying themselves as a spokesperson or delivering demands will lose good time, get thrown in the hole, and likely be transferred. Demands are broadly suggested rather than delivered to the captors. Maybe no one wanted to go to the chow hall because the quality of the food has been too low, a prisoner might speculate when asked about participation. During a different food strike with different demands, the prisoner might say, I bet if the recreation yard was open more hours, appetites would improve. Next in the food strike usually comes collective punishment. Four prisoners are taken from each housing unit to the hole. One black, one Latino, one white, and one Pacific Islander, Asian, or indigenous person. This is seemingly at random and is more group punishment and intimidation. Meanwhile, while all the prisoners are locked down, every single prison staffer and CO heads to the prison kitchens because now they have to feed 1,230 prisoners the minimum required calories per day. They start making sack lunch meals for all the prisoners. These are then distributed to all the prisoners in their cells for the next meal, dinner. My Sally and I talked about prison actions while locked down, talked about books and meditation and work and how the CO's administration were responding to the strike. Occasionally we would talk from our external cell window to the cells nearby to pass information. Discipline to stay out on a food strike is difficult to control because lines of communication between housing units and between groups are cut off once lockdown begins. Usually prisoner leaders discuss how long to stay out ahead of time and let people know. Unless communicated ahead of time, the food strike is unlikely to be more than one to three days as discipline beyond that point is likely to break down. Prisoners know when to call off the food strike by watching when the call is made to send the prisoners to chow and see whether a critical mass holds or breaks in each housing unit. If you see prisoner leaders going back to the chow hall, then the strike is over. Usually the next day into a prison food strike, the administration will try to pull a crew of kitchen workers to make the next meal. And then they will go around and tell the prisoners they are going to reopen for lunch the next day. Are you going to lunch? Etc. Generally, prisoners are non-committal when interrogated at their cells and then watching for whether we're all going to lunch or not. If the food strike continues, the cycle repeats. Sack lunch, questioning, collective punishment, lockdown, four more from each housing unit to the hole. You start seeing them cycle people out of the hole to make room as they only have so many cells. More likely, the food strike ends after one or two days and then the prison returns to normal. Some of the demands may be met. For sure though, without a food strike, no demands regarding conditions will be met. Just as importantly, successful prison food strikes each time teach and convert a number of inmates into class consciousness. The exploited learn, through experience, their power to withhold labor and the power of solidarity. It's not theoretical, it's visceral, palpable. I haven't been in any prison riots. I missed the crack cocaine sentencing disparity riots that had occurred in October of 1995 in a number of federal prisons across the U.S. simultaneously. The riots were a response to a House vote in Congress where they refused to address the 100 to 1 disparity in sentencing between crack cocaine and powder cocaine, a difference clearly racially and economically coded. Federal prisons in Alabama, Illinois, Tennessee, and Pennsylvania had the most intense prison riots, but a lot of other facilities, including Sheridan, also had riots and protests. One of my friends in prison taught me my first year how to fashion a prison riot balaclava out of a t-shirt in about nine seconds. Prison riots would be triggered in the early 2000s at for-profit prisons over excessive lockdown or cell time caused by purposeful understaffing, a common issue inside for-profit contract prisons. Race riots occur as well when the prison administrations fail to keep the racial divisions at a required low simmer and relations boil over. 
There are differences between the outside world and prison, but prison food strikes are one of the experiences that give me hope for regular people coming together to change conditions. Inside a prison where the administration actively works to stoke racial divisions amongst diverse peoples with the lowest educational levels and highest level of antisocial tendencies, class consciousness can be learned, embraced, and wielded to win demands and transform lives. Dignity and respect matter whether you are a prisoner being exploited for your labor, or whether you are a Starbucks barista, an Amazon worker, a Trader Joe's clerk, a graduate student, a nurse, a bus driver, or an adjunct professor being exploited for your labor. Solidarity. The next episode of Sunder continues to move the narrative forward. In episode 7, I'll discuss early years in prison, as well as the subject of anti-fascism. Subscribe and catch the whole tale. There's more to this story of bank robbery, prison, politics, and taking action in a troubled world. You can help me by rating and reviewing the podcast. Send a link to to the podcast to a friend. Sunder is written, edited, and produced by Brian Denning. The theme song is by Holy Sons. You can contact Sunder at podcastsunder at gmail.com. Support the work being done here by subscribing on Patreon. Even better, become a dues-paying, participating member of your local DSA chapter. You have the ability to change this world. Good hunting.